episode of boagworld.com, a podcast for those involved in designing, developing and running websites on a daily basis. For some reason that didn't sound right today. I got that right, did I? I yeah, think. you got it right. You'd um, think you'd remember it by now though, wouldn't you? You would do. I just had a mental block. That just sums up today, really. It's like <laughs> there, 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 there. So this could be a very entertaining podcast. Hello, Marcus. How are you? Hello, Paul. I'm <laughs> fine. And you're not so fine today, are you? It's just, just some days you get out of bed, well, no, actually that's not true. Some days you're in bed and you think it's not worth getting out, really. (laughs) Today is a day very much like that, but there you go, such is life. We will carry on regardless in order to keep our listeners happy. But this isn't the best start to a show as... um, Keep them amused more like would be a better way of putting it. Well, yeah, something like that. It's not the best start to a show, mine, it has to be said, considering we've got quite a few new listeners. Hello, new listener. Hello. What, new listener? Well, you know, I like, to re- I like to refer to people on an individual basis. I don't want them to feel that they're just one of a mass. So, I re- okay. so we, we have just oh. one listener. Yeah, one new listener. Each listener is important in his own or her own right. So I think the old listener will be getting feeling a bit left out and lonely now, though. Oh, yeah. Hello, old listener. But not old in age. I'm not making judgments or being ageist in any way. Anyway, let's um, get vaguely onto the show. So let's start again. Right. <clears throat> let's pretend we're starting the show again. Okay. <clears throat> Hello, and welcome to the 84th episode of BoagWorld.com, the podcast for all those involved in designing, developing, and running websites on a daily basis. My name's Paul Boag, and joining me today is Marcus Lillington. Hello, Marcus. Hi. Hi. Hi, Paul. Hi. <laughs> See, that was better. That's how it should be done. On today's uh, wonderful and exciting podcast, I will be talking about um, why in Headscape, which for you new listeners is the web design company that uh, myself and Marcus work for, why we do something called design testing and how that works and stuff like that. Marcus, what are you going to be doing for us? Uh, I'm talking about, well, I'm responding to a question, as I usually do, about a guy who set up his uh, web design company about a year ago on his own and he's panicking a bit about should he be employing people, who should he employ, that kind of thing. Cool. So talk about that. That sounds good. And then finally we've got um, Mark Buckingham on today's show who will be introducing us to the world of search engine optimization. which even though we're on our 84th episode, I don't think we've really looked at um, as of yet. So that would be good. So that's today's show. Oh, you, you're going to disagree. You think we have looked at it? Uh, yeah, but we're talking a long time ago now. I'm uh, pretty certain one of the early ones was talked about SEO. Okay, fine. Feel free but, to disagree but, with me. You were talking about it, so chances are this one will be a good episode. <laughs> the other one wasn't so accurate, maybe. <laughs> Anyway, let's move on and start with the news. So, let's start off with our first news story. And I came across a great post this week that provides some solid advice and a good introduction to pagination. Now, if you haven't come across the term... Yes, I know, exciting, isn't it? If you haven't come across the term pagination before, it refers to navigational elements that allow you to move between multiple pages of results. Um, They often include links marked previous and next or numbers that allow you to quick jump to a specific page of results. You you often see them at the bottom. Okay, that was a much simpler way of basically (laughs) saying what I just said. (laughs) It really annoys me when you do that. (sighs) Okay, so yes, 
pagination so we use pagination all the time and most websites um seem to have them however we kind of overlook them as a piece of functionality and they don't really get the attention they deserve so i found a post this week entitled pagination 101 that explains to the reader through some examples of what makes pagination work um now i'm not convinced by absolutely everything that was written in the article there but the vast majority of it is some really sound advice. The only thing that I wasn't entirely convinced about was a comment that pagination shouldn't include underlines, even though they're links. And I've kind of I've got mixed feelings about that, and I'm not sure I agree with that comment. But other than that, it's a really good, uh, really good post. And personally, I love posts like this that kind of cover very basic stuff. Um, it helps to remind us not to get so caught up in the really cool stuff. Uh, that we kind of neglect the fundamentals of the web. So take a few minutes and, and just check that out and read it. You'll find it interesting. Next news story up is a free CSS-based design course, which is pretty cool. Um, uh, it's just been released, and it provides a complete introduction to doing CSS-based design. And if you're still um, thinking about making the switch from table-based design or you're finding the, the switch really challenging, then I would really highly rec recommend this course. Um, now, we're not talking about a short introduction here. You're not going to sit down and read this in one sitting. We're talking about an in-depth course that builds up over a series of weeks into a comprehensive guide to building with web standards. Not only does the course tell you how to build with standards, it also explains why which is, um, in my opinion, the most important thing. So is this, um, this is aimed at experienced designers who are table-based designers rather than sort of newbies to design web design? Um, I think it probably could work for both, but I, I, in my opinion, it's probably more appropriate to people that are table, existing table-based designers and moving across. I mean, if you are somebody that's just starting out in web design for the first time, then um, something like Ian Lloyd's book, uh, um, oh, what's it called? It's got a ridiculously long title that I always forget. Um, building websites the right way using CSS and XHTML or something like that. If book by Ian Lloyd, you can do a search on it and find it. That's probably a better starting point. I mean, that taught my wife how to, to build a website. So it's very, 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 very basic. And now she's overtaken you. Hey. Yes. She's far more talented than me, which is very <coughs> annoying, really, but I can forgive her. So speaking of web standards, um, it's worth mentioning a post recently by Jeffrey Zeldman, the kind of godfather of the web standards movement. Now, the post is nothing to do with web standards at all, um, but I had to make a dubious link there. So yes, it's also not particularly earth-shattering stuff. Zeldman suggests that um, in his post that um, it's a mistake to use things like five-star ratings on a website um, or indeed any other option that, that allows a kind of neutral answer. And the problem is that if you allow people to rate something between one to five, they will often rate it three because three is a neutral response. As Zeldman points out, this is a problem that is a lot broader than just the kind of rating systems we use on the website. It also applies to any response or applies to any response that allows people to give an uncommitted answer, which he argues is, is obviously a waste of time. But, Marcus, you disagree with this? I do. I think that's wrong, because I think having a neutral stance, having a, an uncommitted, you know, an uncommitted position on something is perfectly valid. Say if you're, if, you, if you're asking five questions, I don't know, well, on questions one to four, you feel strongly uh, one way or the other. On question five, you don't really give a hoot about, then you want to have the don't give a hoot answer. Mm. I think that's wrong. I think, okay, I mean, as if, if, you're, if you're looking to ask questions in a, car, in a way to get responses so that you can change something or improve something, then, yeah, the neutral answer doesn't help you very much, apart from knowing how many people feel kind of non-committal about it, because it might mm. tell you that actually you don't need to do anything. So mm. I think that's wrong, wrong. So, so, yeah, and I actually think you've got a fair point in that. But the reason I included this as a news story wasn't so much, you know, 
the, the fact that whether I agreed or disagreed with him on this particular point. And to be honest, is it really a very important point? It doesn't really justify a news story. But what it did drive home to me was that web design is as much about understanding your use of psychology as it is about good design or clean code. And I think, you know, perhaps on this show and, and, and to be honest, online generally, I think people spend a lot of time talking about good design or clean code or usability or accessibility and stuff like that. When I think psychology is a big part of what we do as well. So that's why I wanted to give it a mention. The final news story for today is that I came across a site this week called IE Net Render um, that takes free instant screen grabs of your site as it is displayed on IE6, IE7 or IE5.5. And this is a great way to see how your site is rendering on one of those browsers, especially if you save upgraded to IE7 and you want to see what it looks like on IE6 or IE5.5. Um, it's also damn useful if you're a Mac user or a Linux user or somebody like that. Of course, there are similar services out there, but most of them charge, um, and many of them are incredibly slow. What impressed me about IE Net Render was the speed at which it returned the results. Um, the only drawback I can see of the service is that it doesn't actually display stuff that's below this kind of artificial fold that it creates. So. It's not perfect, but it you know it's free, it's quick, and um, it's worth checking out. So, th- as always, there will be a link to that and all of the other news stories that uh, we've talked about today on the Boag World website at boagworld.com forward slash podcast. Select show eighty four, and you'll be able to get to all of these links. Okay, let's move on. Boagworld.com. Radio, uh, we couldn't really decide who was the agony uncle and who was doing <laughs> client corner this week, so this is just Marcus's bit. I think okay. we ought to start doing this from now on, Marcus. I think we need to confess <laughs> that that there is no rhyme or reason to how we do this show. <laughs> we tend to get a lot of questions from people who uh, who are web designers or work in web design agencies. They outnumber the clients a lot more, so you, so responding sort of agony uncle style. Is, uh, there's a lot more uh, a lot more content there to deal with, so I guess we're both agony uncles this week. But, I yeah. think we'll but, just we'll just be ourselves. Whatever yeah. we are, we will do. Whatever we fancy, we will do. Sod structure. It's overrated. Absolutely. Exactly. Yes, we're artists, you know. Yes. <sighs> and I'm going to talk about business. All right, here we go. Um, got this question from Andrew. Last year, I started my web design business from a back bedroom with very little experience and an old copy of Dreamweaver. I guess the fingers were in the air waving when I said old there. Uh, I'm pleased to say I'm still here and the business is growing steadily. Your forum and podcasts have been invaluable and offered loads of great advice and support and no doubt helped many others in my position. So thank you. Well, that's fine. Damn, we've Pleasure. kept him in, we've kept <laughs> him in business and now he's turning into competition. <laughs> we're fools. Yeah. I don't know where he's from, actually. That's a good point. Yeah, I'm not Yeah, That's it. Move on. And so let's move on to the next section of the show. Now, go on. Be nice. Help him out. My question for both both of you, so you can can talk, Paul, if you wish, um, is have you any advice on managing the growth and development of a web design business? As a one-man band, when is a good time to take someone on? Or could I realistically work with freelancers all the time? It seems that to take someone on is very costly, not just in terms of skills. But if I want to expand the business and our services for clients, I can't do it alone. Should I hire someone who can do everything or someone who can sell, leaving me to do design and development work? What are the pitfalls that I should look out for? Any thoughts or insight into your experiences would be really helpful. I think you ought to uh, to hire an army of salespeople, 50, 100 of them, all in (laughs) one go. There, that's that's got rid of him. (laughs) Woohoo! Perhaps um, that's the answer, Marcus. Perhaps that's what we need to do. We need to start giving bad advice every week. Well, before I start giving bad or good or whichever type of advice, I just want to say that what I'm about to say is my own personal opinion and does not constitute legal advice. I'm getting bad, on I? I say this pr- pretty much every time now. Uh, you're just a big <laughs> scaredy cat. I've got Chris whispering in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> but... Mentioning salespeople, let's do the easy bit first and talk about salespeople. Bless them. Um, we had enough bad experiences uh, of salespeople when we worked at uh, the previous company uh, that where huh. Chris and I worked at. Uh, and basically learned the lesson that the only people who can reliably sell the services of a web design company are the people that own it. 
Uh, I guess that there are bound to be examples around where that's not the case, but for the majority of cases, it needs to be you, the owner, the director, whoever. Um, People actually have a a stake in the business who are are selling, selling it. I'm not well, saying I that thought, all... I have thought about the fundamental flaw in that argument, Mike. If you go back to the company we used to previously work for, you and me sold quite a lot there, and we didn't own the company. Uh, we were, you, I guess, we were having a, 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 we had a stake in it to a certain extent. I, we had, a, we realised that if we didn't do the selling, then we wouldn't have a job. But isn't that true? Wouldn't that be true in the case of, uh, of this guy that if he hired a salesperson, you know, there wouldn't be all right, there wouldn't be a company, is what I mean. Not not I wouldn't have a job as uh, as a salesperson. Anyway, let, let me let, let me carry on. Yeah, of course there are examples where uh, you know the right person comes along. I guess I guess I suppose if if you do get a salesperson who who boosts your business and and brings lots of work in. Then that person's probably well, probably worthy of being, being on the board and being a director of your company. They're worth their weight in gold. But anyway, I'm going to move on. Um, I'm not saying that so good salespeople don't exist. Certainly not. Just that selling kind of highly priced solution based work doesn't fit well with your sort of standard sales ethos. Salespeople like products. They like products with set prices, um, and they like to be able to cut those prices. Uh, and they, but most of all, they like having demonstrable return on investment. I, you can, they can go in and say to uh, a new client, if you buy my widget or my bit of software, it will save you fifty percent of your turnover or whatever every year. And I've got mm. you know proper figures that will demonstrate that. Whereas with design, in particular design, it's very hard to put figures to. I can't tell a company that redesigning their site will boost sales by X or Y percentage. I can talk about brand values and the importance of conveying quality, but I can't put any hard figures on it. Um, most web design sales involve responding to a tender with normally with a fairly lengthy proposal, so you need to be able to write, uh, and subsequent pitch that is tailored for that particular prospective client. So it's not just one, you know, not every, not every, every proposal, every pitch is different. So, whereas if you're selling a selling a, a product, there isn't really a proposal and a pitch. It's a, it's more sort of going out and meeting and greeting people. Um, and these pitches and proposals tend to draw from all aspects of the business: design, technical, consultancy. Basically, everyone that works there, you can often go around and talk to them, and get their input on it. So, therefore, you need someone with a good understanding of the business to put it together, and that usually is the person that owns the business. Mm. So, who do you employ? We currently, well, the, the type of person that works at Headscope at the moment include the following roles, designer, developer, project manager, information architect, and I've put in testing facilitator because we seem to do more and more of that these days, obviously, and salespeople. <clears throat> but we've, we've said don't employ salespeople. So um, you're looking at uh, th- those kind of people. Again, we tend to share between Paul, Chris, and I the information architecture work, testing work. So that, that narrows that list down to designer, developer, project manager. Project managers are brilliant. They're wonderful people who basically take a lot of, a lot of the strain off you as you, you running, running the company, running projects. Um, but obviously, they're not the first people you employ. So in this particular area, you're looking at a designer or a developer. So you need to look at your own skills and see where you're lacking. Maybe filling the gaps is the right way forward. But that may only be appropriate if you're looking to take on more complex work, looking for bigger projects, that kind of thing. But whereas doubling up what your skills are might be exactly the right thing to do because you're getting, you know, you're getting more and more work in that's similar and you just simply can't cope. Um, often a new project win will point towards who the right person is. That's exactly what happened with us. Mm. Uh, when we started, we, Paul, Paul was doing the design and some of the technical work. Chris was doing project management and I was doing the sales. At the time, we had uh, a very good client that kept um, firing flash work at us. And Paul, as, as he will admit, that's not, uh, not one of his strengths. So we outsourced yeah. a couple of times. But we eventually, we ended up offering a permanent position to one of, these, one of these guys. And he's still with us. And actually, the other guy who we were, we were outsourcing at the time, at the time, is still with us now as well. Um, and interesting, the first guy that we employed, employed is a kind of jack-of-all-trades. I mean, he's a designer first, but he's, also, he's probably the most technical of all the designers. 
uh, and he, he can also manage projects. So he was he really was uh, an excellent person to bring on first on board. I mean, you mentioned should I hire someone who can do everything? Probably yes, because that Chris helped us out um, hugely when when we when he joined us initially. Um, but as you grow, then you tend to want want to employ more and more specialist people. But early on, someone who can do a bit of everything, I think, is uh, worth their weight in gold. So finally, um, do you take on a per- per- someone permanent or do you carry on with freelancers? Uh, taking on freelancers can often mean the difference between being able to deliver jobs or not. So they really are very valuable people and making sure that you, you, you have people that you can, you can go to when, at times when, when you're winning loads of stuff is really important. But they are expensive and will badly erode your bottom line if you do it all the time. Just ask yourself, if you've been using freelancers for the past year or six months or whatever, ask yourself that if you've been employing someone over that period, how much more, how much higher your bottom line would be. However, employees are a big responsibility and need a lot of looking after. Uh, <clears throat> one thing we've learned over the years is that happy staff make more productive and more effective staff. Paul's recently mentioned that we've started doing, uh, with, you know, giving, giving basically Friday afternoons, handing, handing that over to them to everyone to say, you know, work on whatever you fancy working on and then we, we get together every month and present our ideas to each other, which is normally quite a laugh and the best idea wins something cool, supposedly. <laughs> um, I guess the very final point is that, and I have to mention this when we're talking about employing people, is that sometimes you have to make some very tough decisions. Uh, the bottom line is that the company, not even you, but the company comes first. Um, so, you know, of times times when it's hard um you, you will take the first hit but if you're still taking a hit then you know your employees have to uh, have to take a hit as well and it's uh, you know that's just life but you've got to be prepared for that uh, if it reaches that point um but one final point and this is really important in in the words of um, of the late great douglas adams don't panic this is what i've been saying to chris and paul for years um hang on very... a minute i don't <laughs> panic chris panics uh, it's easy what to see. <laughs> I'm ignoring you. Um, don't say anything nice. Don't say anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy when things are going bad, though, though, to sort of think, oh no, it's all you know, it's all going horribly wrong. It's all going to go, you know, everything's going to go go from bad to worse. And actually, you know, after a month, everything's back to where you were. Uh, so just, just to, yeah, don't panic. Just uh, look at things on a kind of rolling. Uh, you know, on a roll over over a three month period, things will probably be fine. If you're looking, say, say it, sort of sales that are coming in on a monthly basis. Sometimes a couple of months can be really bad, but then that third month can put it all back in uh, uh, back in line. So yeah, don't panic. And that's it, really. Good stuff. Thank you very much. Okay, let's move on. Okay, so welcome to Paul's corner, my <laughs> special part of the show. Hi. Um. Right. Yes. Design testing I'm going to be talking about today. So Headscape, the web design company we work for, um, or run, should I say, has always done design testing as part of its development process. And yet we seem to be in the minority doing that. We are often met with a lot of scepticism about the benefits of putting a design concept in front of real users, um, as well as uh, a lot of questions we also get from people about how the process works and how we do it. Um, as I've rec- recently received two emails on the subject over the last week, I thought it was about time that we talked about it properly. We find it a helpful way of getting sign-off on a design. Um, and I know that not everybody agrees with this approach, so as a result, I thought it was worth sharing some of my thoughts on it. Getting the sign-off on the look and feel of a website can be an amazingly painful process. Um, everybody has an opinion on design and it seems uh, to matter very little that they're paying you as the designer for your expert advice. It continually amazes me that clients would prefer to design it themselves by micromanaging the process than they would to allow uh, the person that they're paying the job, uh, paying to do the job to do it, if that makes sense. At the root of the problem is the fact that design is a subjective thing. And although there are some underlying principles of good design, a lot of it comes down to what people personally like or dislike. And this makes um, deciding on a design a potential stumbling block. Now, there are numerous approaches you could take to getting designs approved, but the approach that we adopt at, at Headscape is design testing. 
Now, I'm not going to claim for a minute that the process of, of signing off is always smooth when used design testing. That's not the case. But it is slightly more objective a process, and we do find it successful for us. Okay, so let's take a step back. What is design testing? Probably the easiest way uh, to describe design testing is to say what it's actually not. It's not a scientific process like, say, polling. It's not a matter of simply selecting the design that has scored the best. It's a completely subjective process where observation and intuition are more important than statistical results. You cannot simply rely on people saying uh, what they say initially about your design. It is necessary to engage with them and endeavor to understand the underlying motivation uh, behind the comments that they're making. Probably the most common question I use in design testing is why. By continually asking why, you dig deeper into somebody's motivation and encourage them to express in more detail how they are responding to a design. This By talking to them... Three-year-old three kind of way of doing it. Why? Yeah. Why? 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad we're beyond that now. Um, by talking to them face-to-face -face as well, um, you pick up on somebody's body language and emotional response rather than the kind of statistical response you get through doing, say, a poll. Also, design testing is not a focus group. It is vital that you engage with users on a kind of one-to-one -one basis. Group discussion leads to less confident members being influenced by the thoughts of, of other more or, you know, loud and outspoken people, um, and that can undermine your results. Also, interacting with a website is almost always a solitary experience, and so uh, the design should be assessed in the same way. Okay, so what exactly happens in a design test session? Well, in most of the sessions we run, the user is asked to complete two particular exercises. Number one, flash testing. The idea of a flash test is simply to judge the weighting and emphasis of a design. Are the right elements highlighted? Will the user be distracted by something of minor importance? Will they notice a key piece of content? This is achieved by showing the user the design for a few seconds and then removing it from sight. You know, like the old, you used to put things on a tray, didn't you, and then take one away. Or if you live in the UK and you remember the generation game, we're talking about that kind of thing. Um, you then ask the user to recall as many items as they can um, and you note down what items they remember but not just what items they remember but the order in which they recalled them. Screen elements um, that have had the most impact with the user will almost always be mentioned first. So that's one test that we do. The other exercise we do is, uh, is what I call emotional response but I'm not entirely sure that's the right word to be honest. And it's a much more subjective uh, process and takes practice to get right. And this is when um, you get into the realms of personal opinion. We all know that, um, that there is no good asking somebody what they think of a design. If you ask them that, the reaction you will inevitably get is, I don't like the green. Or somebody else will say, I like the green. And you get really just subjective answers that, that vary from person to person. However, there is value, I believe, in asking a person um, what their emotional response to a design is. Now, it's a bit of a kind of fuzzy thing to describe. <laughs> we, basically, we simply ask a person to describe the site using non-design-related words. So they could describe a site as funky or moody, but not as too dark or too busy. Now, some fi find this exercise really hard to do. They, they really struggle to think up words. So... Um, we often give them a choice in order to get them started. So typically we'll have a list of extremes uh, that we ask the user to choose between. For example, is the design conservative or progressive? Is it cold or is it friendly? And although to some extent these are leading questions, it does get people thinking in the right way so that they start to create words of their own. And to be honest, the data is still useful in its own right. So I guess the big question is, is design testing worthwhile? Um, and I've talked about design testing with other designers, and in many cases, I actually get a ne negative reaction. The perception is that the client is paying the designer for their e expertise, and so it should be the designer that develops the look and feel in isolation. They also express a fear that um, the design will be compromised somehow if the masses you know, get to see it, so to speak. Now, both of these objectives are actually i think uh, sorry objectives 
both of these objections are, I think, actually valid. Um, the designer should be making the de uh, design decisions, and too many cooks definitely spoil the broth when it comes to design. However, in the real world, clients do interfere in the design process, um, and so design testing can be an effective way of minimizing the influence um, of a single poorly informed person that is trying to enforce their their personal preferences on a site. This so is why I it's, believe really, it's why it's really important that design when you do design testing, you must must have um, the actual tar target audience doing the testing, because yeah. then you're guessing. Basically, instead of the the client who isn't necessarily a user of the site, they they will be giving their opinion all the way through it. Um, mm. But it's much much more valuable to get get the opinion of of some some of the target audience. Uh, mm. The biggest thing I've learned from it though is is you have to be prepared to maybe accept some things that you don't want, and I guess that's. <laughs> Where designers might get it's like scared of the masses looking at it because they do make yeah. choices sometimes. You think, why did you do that? But yeah. they all did it, so you kind of have to take note. Yeah, so I actually believe that design testing, I've come up with four powerful benefits that, that I, I think design testing has. Um, the first is that it puts the design process beyond personal preference. We all know um, when we don't like a design a lot of us have strongly held opinions about what we like. Um, however, none of that really matters very much when it comes to a website. What matters, as Marcus has just said, is what the user likes. Um, I've designed sites before that I personally hate, um, but which I know that the target audience love because we've tested it with them. Design testing can help you focus on the user rather than your own personal likes or dislikes or the personal likes and dislikes of your client. Second benefit, it avoids a design, sorry, a designer-client confrontation. Um, I've watched too many projects grind to a halt because the client and designer cannot agree on the design. The designer feels that the client should bow to his experience and training while the client is convinced that as he's paying for the site, he should get what he wants. These kinds of statements can be, uh, stalemates, can be incredibly damaging um, but design testing is an excellent way of diffusing those kinds of differences. The, the third reason that I think design testing is, is, is very effective is that it informs the design process. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I am totally convinced that the designer should be in control of the design and that design by committee is the nail in the coffin of many websites. However, design testing is about informing the design process, not replacing it. In my opinion, um, the more informed the designer is, the better. By meeting real users and having the opportunity to ask some questions and to discuss the look and feel of the site, the designer can um, only be better informed when developing his concepts, and I can't see how that can be a bad thing. Finally, I think design testing helps minimize design by committee. Although you could perceive design testing as design by committee in itself, I actually think that it's an effective way of preventing design by committee. Design by committee normally happens when the client starts showing the design around to his colleagues because he doesn't want to be responsible for making the decision about design himself. You as the designer are very rarely there and so you don't get to hear the feedback firsthand and you don't get to control the way the design is pre presented and um, deal with any questions that are asked. You don't get to explain your design. Design testing is a controlled environment and, and still gives the, the client the confidence that he or she needs. So you control um, how the design is shown, what is said about the design, how questions are addressed, all of those kinds of things. You get first-hand experience of what's happening, yet the client still gets the confidence of, I didn't make this decision alone and it's not just my personal opinion here. So it kind of, everybody wins. After all, if the design is liked by real users, how can anybody else within the organization really argue with that? So there you go. That's design testing in a nutshell. Now, I'm not claiming it's a perfect system, but we found it very useful for keeping projects moving and for getting the final sign-off on look and feel. Okay, so let's move on. So this week on the show, we have Mark Buckingham talking about SEO and uh, Mark 
is uh, somebody that I've I've uh, come across via the .NET magazine and my involvement there. And he also has um, an interesting site at netseek.co.uk. Um, and we've got him on the show really to introduce us to the world of search engine optimization. Um, and Mark, in the interview you're about to hear, dispels some of the myths surrounding SEO and he talks about best practice and some techniques such as keyword density and link popularity. So um, let's take a few minutes to listen to what he's got to say. And uh, then there's something I want to talk about with you afterwards. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for for agreeing to join us. It's good to have you on the show. It's good to be here. Thank you. I guess the the first thing I wanted to start with was that as somebody that that doesn't know a lot about search engine optimization, there seems to be, it's like whoever you talk to, you get a slightly different angle on things. And it it doesn't seem to be a very black and white area. There seems to be a lot of mystery and uncertainty about it. Is that that right? Or am I just being hugely ignorant? Uh, No, I think you're right. uh, You know, to a great degree there. Um, There is a lot of misinformation. It's uh, a wide spectrum of information. So SEO is particularly prone to uh, misinterpretation and misunderstanding, like anything. And I think it's really important, in my view at least, to just always be resolutely focused on usability and creating really good content and following the fundamentals of optimization. Um, Google's Webmaster Guidelines should always be consulted. Um, and when you look through those guidelines and, and consult um, kind of eminent optimization blogs and, and articles and such like, you'll start to kind of have a greater understanding of the fundamentals. And then everything else is you can take it or leave it. Um, I think always it comes down to usability. Um, there are a lot of companies out there now um, proffering to be able to guarantee rankings, uh, optimization companies that is, who are offering you know, guaranteed rankings or, or particular results very quickly and, and claiming they can do this, that and the other and employing some very questionable techniques. And I would always be very, very careful about that because mm. a lot of that may backfire on you. So yeah, ultimately I think it comes back to, to just usability and creating good content and in doing your homework and really taking some time to actually understand the, uh, the fundamentals of optimization, which to a large extent are actually on Google's uh, webmaster um, pages. You mentioned there that um, you get some companies that promise you certain rankings. Uh, that kind of brings me on nicely to some of the, the misinformation and myths that, that seem to surround search engine optimization. And, you know, as somebody that's obviously quite heavily involved in this area, what do you think the kind of, you know, top five or the, the, the main myths are that, that exist that, that aren't true when it comes to search engine optimization? Well, there's so many. Uh, <laughs> five off the top of my head. I would say the first one is that there are no, you cannot guarantee results. I, I personally, as an SEO consultant, would never dream of guaranteeing particular results um, and when and where they would appear. It, it's just simply impossible. And I think from my conversations with uh, Matt Cutts at Google and other people, uh, you know, more eminent, um, far more eminent than I in the field, uh, they, they all kind of concur. So I think that's a given. Um, secondly, I think if you... It's a bit of a sweeping generalization, but if you kind of overlook the importance of good content and you just focus on the rankings first, if you focus on striving to get pole position or thereabouts without actually paying great attention to what you're giving the user, the quality of your content, the quality of your copy, um, then you're always going to, I think, going to end up with possibly good rankings, but never the conversions and perhaps never the respect in that you might otherwise deserve. So I think it's uh, very easy and very tempting for people just to get very focused on on the quick fix kind of mentality, which I understand. Um, but really, it should be more of a, in my view at least, a holistic um, approach. Um, I think some of the tricks and, and technology uh, <laughs> techniques rather that some people uh, apply um, don't work. Uh, simply meta tags are, are redundant. Um, not not the title and description tags, rather, but the keyword tags. I mean, okay. I don't any difference at all. That's a little thing that 
some clients ask me, can you do our keyword tags? And I say, well, why? In my view, it doesn't really make any difference, especially with Google. However, the title and description tags do. So I must correct myself there. Meta tags in general are important, but uh, the keyword tag, which is... Um, which is the one that everybody used to, back in the day, talk about as being relevant. Abs- yes. Absolutely. That's, that's now completely redundant, at least for Google and, and the other major engines. Um, yeah. Inbound links are very important, but simply having them um, without paying attention to the relevancy and quality of those links um, won't necessarily make a huge difference. So I, again, this is a lot of you know my opinion here, what worked for me in the past. So, you know, some people may uh, you know have different opinions, but but a lot of companies that I've dealt with, they're very focused on getting um, inbound links, but they seem to miss the the uh, importance of establishing quality. Um, relevant links. Mm. Uh, I think that's hugely important. So just having links is not necessarily going to make a difference. In fact, it could harm your rankings if Google sees a trend of of uh, of links from link farms or questionable sites that have perhaps um, employed spam in the past or are penalised in some way. Outbound links don't really make much of a difference. I mean, it's a good incentive really? to establish um, link reciprocity. So if I have a site um, and I want to try and create a buzz, then that's one way of, of, of you know, trying to, to, to encourage other webmasters to link back to me. But simply having outbound links won't make much of a difference. I could link to all the best sites in the world and Google's going to pay very little attention to that as far as I'm concerned. Um, having links can make a difference if you're optimizing the link well in, in the sense that you've got a keyword in the link and it's relevant to the copy. I think that can make a difference, but what I'm simply saying is just having them is not necessarily going to make a difference to your ranking. The other thing I'd say would be keyword stuffing. I think this is used less frequently, uh, as far as I can tell, in my experience. Uh, companies are now, and, and optimizers and webmasters, are a little bit more savvy now to what works and what doesn't and the kind of cheating inadvertently or otherwise that Google will now uncover um, and I'm, I'm glad to see that you know keyword stuffing uh, is uh, and clawing tiny invisible uh, almost invisible keywords into your text is is, is less uh, widespread now that makes uh, no difference if, if anything it can be very uh, harmful to your rankings um, if again mm-hmm. Google sees a trend of that across your site the thing that I'm picking up from you is that really if you if you create a well-coded well-written, usable site, then you're probably going to do better in search engines. Um, so, I mean, the, the question that immediately springs to mind then is, well, you know, why do we need search engine optimizers? So l- let's take an example. You know, there's a, n- a new client comes to you who hasn't really ever focused on optimization before, hasn't um, really tried in that area before. Maybe he's got an existing website. Maybe he's building a new website. What, you know, what do you do for that, for that person? What do you, what advice do you provide? Well, I'll just answer your first, your first point, which is very interesting is why do we need optimizers? Um, and I think optimization is almost like putting, putting your best foot forward. I, I know when I spoke with Matt Cutts, uh, who's uh, kind of Google's um, well, head of their web spam team and, and their kind of chief liaison um, for, for optimizers. Um, he, he cites SEO as almost like a resume, and it is putting your best foot forward. And I think it's, it's a question of honing your website, creating the best copy, um, and just making sure it's as user-friendly as possible. But there are fundamentals that you can put in place, and I'll um, discuss those now. Um, but I also think SEO should be so integrated with the design process that, in some senses, SEO isn't really considered a separate practice. And I, and I think you're, you're right. Mm. A good design is good optimization. And we always kind of emphasize that to our clients. A well-designed site will be well-optimized as a matter of course. Um, and that the SEO works in two different, well, three different areas. There's the copy, the content, the text, if you will the structural optimization and then the off-page optimization which we do kind of I tend to do halfway through the design or when there is a site up that people can look at and and that would typically be you know encouraging quality inbound links and and, and subscribing to certain directories and such like then we spend um, a lot of time looking at the content what they had in mind 
Um, they may have a marketing department who've, uh, who's created uh, text. Or they may just be kind of copying the text from their brochure. And I would work with them as a, as a copywriter to, to try and kind of augment that copy and, and populate the pages in their sitemap and with, with uh, relevant, uh, compelling copy. For example, the top of my head, if it was an estate agent and they've got a, you know, a chain of three or four offices in, in the local area, you know, rather than just talk about house prices and their new properties and such like, look at perhaps you know, having a few articles about you know, the pitfall of sure. you know, the, the first time buyer might face and you know, some of the ways that they can counteract that. Um, tips and tricks to you know, expediting the, the house sale process or whatever. So, um, so it's both good content and also something that feeds the search engine. Well, most definitely. Works. So as you're creating the content, um, it's very, very, very important to actually be mindful of your keywords. Now, there are, as with everything I'm saying today, um, or most things I'm saying, there are differences in opinion. Um, I think with keyword optimization, um, personally, I always like to be mindful of keyword density, keyword frequency, keyword proximity. Now, to a lot of people, that probably doesn't mean an awful lot. Effectively, what it means is that making sure that your text, once you've fine-tuned it and written some good copy um, is populated with relevant key phrases whether it's uh, a single word or a long tail search term um, three or four words um, worked in carefully into your copy now the worst thing you can do is just simply include those key phrases arbitrarily into your pages without really giving um, due consideration as to what key phrases are most relevant to that page are certain key phrases you're including just too competitive, what we call the trophy key phrases. Um, I'll make it a little bit clearer. If you've got a page uh, site of 20 pages and you're talking about, for instance, um, let's say you are an estate agent, you're talking about property and your properties for sale and such like, rather than just have the top five to 10 key phrases um, throughout, peppered throughout your site, it may be better to actually focus or to, to break that list down. So perhaps aim for a longer list of 20 to 30 key phrases in order some order of priority and then work out what pages those keywords should go on. So maybe take two or three key phrases, let's say first time buyers in Surrey or, or uh, property in Surrey, which is where I live, buying a flat in Surrey, those kind of long tail key phrases and combinations thereof and working those into particular segments of your of your site by focusing more on the niche you're perhaps more likely to, to show up for those um, for those search terms in time um, so rather optimizing your site for niche key phrases is perhaps the best best way forward um, but it's important not to get too specific and focus on phrases that are unlikely to generate mm. a decent volume of traffic just by focusing on your keywords doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get rankings for those key phrases but it's priming your site for that, and it's just one extra thing you can do. I would also work very closely with the client to um, establish the structural optimization. Um, the most important is to ensure that your site has plenty of HTML um, text, so people, uh, so the search engines can actually crawl the, uh, the copy and index it. If the site is just simply graphics or, or flash, search engines are going to find that very difficult to get in and actually index your content. So it's absolutely essential in my mind to, to make sure that your, 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 your site um, has um, at least some HTML for search engines to get in and, um, and index. Okay, so there you go. Some really great stuff from Mark there. And it, but he, he did really just only scratch the surface of the subject of search engine optimization. And to be honest, I'm keen to have Mark back again in the future, and he's willing to do it. Search engine optimization is such a massive area um, and I think it's something we probably need to look at in more depth. So here's the deal. If you've got any specific questions about search engine optimization that you want to ask Mark and get him to respond to, then drop me a line at paul at boagworld.com and we'll get Mark back on in the future um, to talk about it. If you could put SEO in the um, subject line, that would make it all so much easier for me to organize. And so really, I think now that's about it for today's show. I do just want to kind of give a quick mention to something else. 
Um, I wanted to let you know that um, I have been doing some stuff about my reading list. One of the most common emails that I receive is people asking if I could recommend a book or what am I currently reading and that kind of stuff. Now, I posted about this um, a while ago and there's a list of recommended books on the Barrag World site that you can get to via the show notes at barragworld.com forward slash podcast select um, show uh, 84 we're on and you can get at that. But uh, I've just updated that list so it's got some new stuff on as well. But also it occurred to me, well, why don't I create an RSS feed? So I've put together an RSS feed um, of books that I'm reading. Now, be warned that not all of these will be web design related books. I'm just going to put whatever book I happen to be reading at the time in there. Um, So uh, there you go. If you're interested in that, you can check that out as well. So, Marcus, do you have a joke before we wrap up for today? Um, Yeah, um, my my good friend Bernie sent me through um, some basically some quotes from a book called Disorder in the American Courts. And there's some very funny things, basically attorney witness um, conversations. You can imagine the poor person that actually had to write all this down. I've got loads, but I will do a few. Uh, The attorney. Are you sexually active? No, I just lie there. (laughs) (laughs) You can imagine this in the court, right? So here we go. I can't can't pronounce this. Um, This myasthenia gravis, does it affect your memory at all? Yes. And in what ways does it affect your memory? I forget. Uh, you forget? <laughs> and you give us an example of something you forgot? <laughs> oh. <laughs> right, anyway, they did get silly. I've got one more. Here we go. One more for this week. There'll be more next week. Uh, this is the turn again. Uh, now, Doctor, isn't it true that when a person dies in his sleep, he doesn't know about it until the next morning? Witness, what? did you actually pass the bar exam? <laughs> <laughs> and they get better trust me uh, that's it just a teaser this week to keep us yeah. going okay um thanks very much for listening guys i'm sorry if the audio quality hasn't been quite up to our usual standard this week skype it seems to be not cooperating particularly well so marcus is breaking up a bit but um thanks for listening and uh we will talk to you again oh, next week oh, hang on hang on i think I, I might i know what it is my wife bought me uh, one of these magnetic bracelet things, you heard these? They're supposed to help yeah. with your joints and things like that. And it's making me feel very weird. I've got this magnetic bracelet on. I reckon that's what it is. You reckon that? Weird, that's it. Weird stuff Screw going on. Skype. No, I don't think it's that, Marcus. But nice idea. Yeah. Anyway, just you could, you ruined my, my slick ending there. So I'll just have to go. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.